Good evening, and welcome back to our study of 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we've dealt with a lot already. Halfway through this first of two letters to Corinth, we've seen Paul deal with a number of issues. Now he's in the, peer, in the portion of the book where he's talking about specific questions that the Corinthian Christians had for him. We don't have a copy of the letter they sent to Paul, but we can infer from the things he says, here are the questions they had. Uh, so last week it was questions about sexuality and marriage, and we found those, I'm sure, really relevant and interesting, even if some of the customs and traditions were very different from what we deal with today. This chapter is going to be a little more difficult because it deals with a question that none of us ever asks, and that is about eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. So let me let me give you a background of what this what what's going on here. So in the time in which this letter was written, virtually all the meat you could buy in the local marketplace, there was a good chance that it had previously been sacrificed to an idol. So let's say uh, the priest of the temple of Athena had sacrificed 80 bulls and they burned or they, they roasted that meat and then they sacrificed it and some of it was eaten. The rest of it was not. It was taken to the marketplace to be sold. And so if you were a Christian and you wanted to have steak or roast beef that night, you went to the market and you bought your roast or your, your sirloin or whatever the case may be, you knew there was a decent chance that that had been prayed over by an Athenian priest. It had been worshipped. It had been sacrificed to this goddess. And so you had to ask the question, is that okay to do? Now, in Corinth, and, and there were deeper issues besides that. I mean, if you were invited to a, a pagan person's house, it was an even greater chance that the meat they would serve you was sacrificed to idols. If you were a, a Corinthian business person and you wanted to go to one of the festivals, those community festivals were actually held in the temples of the gods and goddesses, and they were eating meat that you knew were sacrificed to gods and goddesses. So uh, there were a lot of Jewish Christians in the church in Corinth. They had been raised to believe if you eat meat that's sacrificed to false gods, then that's no different than bowing down before those gods yourself. I mean, that's legitimately what they were taught uh, as, as Jews growing up, and their belief system on that had spread to Gentile Christians in the Corinthian congregation, but not all, because there were there was another faction of Christians within the church that said, listen, Athena, she doesn't exist. She's just a figment of someone's imagination. Zeus, Hermes, I mean, you name the God, they're not real. The only true God is the God of heaven, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh, God of Israel, creator of heaven and earth. So what difference does it make if some pagan priest prayed over this piece of meat, it doesn't change what the meat is. Since the God isn't real, there's no reason why I can't eat it. In fact, we can imagine that some of these Corinthian Christians wanted to make a statement by exercising their faith so they would intentionally eat meat in the view of their uh, fellow Christians and say, look, my freedom in Christ says I can eat this meat anytime I want, and it, it doesn't make me any less uh, pleasing to God because my my satisfaction in his eyes comes from the blood of Jesus. I can go to the festival uh, this weekend that's in the temple of Athena. Doesn't matter because I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. I am free to do what I want as long as I'm not directly contradicting one of his laws. And so it was a matter of Christian freedom for them. So you can see where this would cause some controversy, some division within the church, some people, one side accusing the other of being idol worship, the other side 
idol worshipers, the other side accusing that first group of being legalistic and trying to impose uh, unbiblical laws on them. Now, you may say, okay, that's all well and good, Jeff, but what does it have to do with us? And, and one of the things I believe about Scripture is the first thing you do is you, you have to ask, what did this mean to the people who read it first? What, what contemporary, and when I say contemporary, in the time of, the, of those people, what contemporary issue was this addressing and what, state was it ta- what statement was it making? So how did those first readers read it? You gotta get, you gotta start with that. But eventually you need to work around to, okay, so what does this mean that I should do? So how do we do that with a question of meat offered to idols? As far as I know, when I go to HEB or Kroger or Majox, uh, the meat there hasn't been sacrificed to Zeus or Athena. When I order my brisket at uh, McKenzie's, I am pretty dadgum sure that it hasn't been sacrificed to any false gods. So what does this have to do with us? Well, let me give you four contemporary situations that I believe this particular chapter uh, enlightens us on or informs us on and gives us principles to make decisions. So years ago, I was part of a church where we had a, a men's group that was trying to get started. They were trying to start a young men's group. And one of the first activities they did was they said, let's all get together and watch Monday Night Football at Buffalo Wild Wings. We'll go and we'll order hot wings and we'll watch the football game and we'll just get to know each other better, which I thought was a great thing. But then I I found out there were people in church that were very offended that this men's group, sponsored by the church, had gone to a place that in their view was a sports bar. And it is. It's a bar where they show sports, so therefore a sports bar. And they thought that was inappropriate for a group from the church. So how does 1 Corinthians 8 apply to this to that question? Second one, I was part of a actually the very same church where the youth group was growing. And when I say growing, I mean it was reaching kids that weren't believers yet. And many of them were becoming believers. We were baptizing teenagers left and right. It was really exciting. But these kids, a lot of them were from non-church backgrounds, and they would wear clothes into the sanctuary on Sunday mornings that some of our more long-term Christians thought were inappropriate to be worn. For instance, a lot of the boys wore baseball caps. That was the big fashion back then. We're talking uh, nearly 20 years ago. And so they were deeply offended. Why doesn't our youth minister stop these kids, these boys, from wearing their baseball caps into church? These people had been raised to believe that was wrong. And so what does 1 Corinthians 8 say on that issue, or how do we apply it to that issue? Here's two more, much more relevant uh, contemporary issues to us, and that is number three. How do I respond as a Christian when someone tells me, you can't come into my place of business, you can't come into my home, you can't come into this assembly or this event unless you're wearing a face mask? Is that an infringement of my rights as an American? Should I protest? Should I, should I be willing to pay the consequences? Should I be angry about this? Or should I comply? Again, I think 1 Corinthians 8 gives us some guidance. And then finally, there's the whole question of, as a church, should we listen to governments who say, it's time for you to close down worship, or it's time for you to only have uh, 50 people in a room at a time uh, due to COVID-19? Uh, should we make other decisions based on these things? What, are, what is our responsibility when it comes to should we always, no matter the 
situation? Should we always have the church doors open for worship on Sunday mornings and physically gather? Okay, so eight-minute introduction. It's not always that way, but I promise this is a short chapter. It won't take long. So let's read, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 8, and then we want to talk about three principles and how we apply them to our situations today. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom all th are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. By the way, that's quite a statement right there. That's, that's a statement of faith. Paul's saying there is only one God. He's living in a society in which multiple gods were worshipped, Paul is saying, we know that none of these other gods are real. There is only one. God is not the greatest among the gods. He is the only God. And we can, as Christians today, say amen to that. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." So to go back to my original question, how did the original readers of this hear it? Well, I'm going to go through the three principles we see here for us today, but I can, I can confidently say what Paul was saying to the Corinthian Christians was, if it causes stumbling in another member of the church, then don't go to that pagan festival. Then don't go to that pagan neighbor to eat uh, meat. Then, in fact, you can abstain from meat. Your question should be about love, okay? So let's go through the three principles. Number one, principle number one, righteousness is no longer measured by abstaining from things. And that's such a huge leap for Paul. Remember, Paul grew up a Pharisee. Pharisees, all they knew was abstaining from things. Their whole belief system was based on abstaining from things that were seen as wicked. They, their whole belief system, their whole... Theology was based on, I am most pleasing to God the more I separate myself from the things of this world. So for a Pharisee, for instance, to walk around with a bleeding mark on his head because he had ducked his head to not look at a pretty girl and he ran into a post, that was a sign of true faith. To be emaciated and starving because you fast so often from food to declare your devotion to God, that was a sign of great faith. Paul says, now though, I understand. Your righteousness is not measured by abstaining from things. That doesn't mean that all things are lawful for us. We talked about that the last two weeks when we talked about sexuality. God has clear standards 
and therefore are good. But what he's saying is you can't, you can no longer measure your righteousness by the things you say no to. And notice there's a change in Paul's definition of what is strong and weak faith. See, Paul, as a Pharisee, he would have said that a weak person was someone who didn't have self-control. A weak person was someone who said, well, I know that kind of food is not allowed, but I'm really hungry for it, and so I'm going to have it anyway. That was weak faith in Paul's former view. Now he says weakness, and by the way, the same subject comes up in Romans chapter 15, and he uses the same analogy of weak and strong. And in both cases, the weak person is the more legalistic person. The weak person is the person who says, I'm not supposed to eat those things. The weak person, in other words, is not weak in self-control. They're weak in their understanding of God's grace. They still think they've got to earn it. They're still always anxious about, okay, if I do this, is God going to be angry with me? If I eat this, is God going to be upset? If I, if I go to this place, am I sinning? That's their constant thought process. And Paul calls that weak faith because the strong person knows that I walk in grace, that God loves me no matter what I do. That doesn't give me permission to do anything I want, but it does free me from this, from this uh, constant second guessing. Put it this way. If you, if you are a child whose parent is very cruel and demanding and abusive, you'll, you'll walk on eggshells. You'll live a life where you're constantly worried. Am I going to get beaten if I do or say this thing? On the other hand, if you live with a parent who is loving and kind, strong, firm, always righteous, holds you accountable, but always in love, then you don't live walking on eggshells. You don't live in anxiety. You, you constantly know, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to obey my mom, my dad, because they have what's best in mind for me and because I love them. And I'm not going to worry about it. If I mess up, they're going to confront me, but they're going to do it in a loving way. They're not going to throw me out into the snow with no clothes on. They're not going to beat me until I have to go to the hospital. Every, every, even their discipline is going to be good. So I don't have to worry. See, that's what I mean. The, the people of weak faith were more like the, the child who thinks his parent is a tyrant. And the person of strong faith is like the child who knows that his mom, his dad loves him and always has nothing but good in mind for him. And, and so isn't it ironic that Paul would look at the person who says, I can't eat meats sacrificed to idols. That might be displeasing to God. And Paul says, well, that's, that's actually weak faith. The person of strong faith doesn't worry about questions like that. He knows there are bigger things to talk about. Um, another way to look at it, a person of weak faith, they hate gray areas. They hate ambiguity. They hate the idea that, well, we don't really know how God feels about this. No, they want, a, they want, a, they want a rule set down in black and white. They want, they want the preacher to tell them uh, a woman's skirt can be this long uh, and it can't be any shorter than that or else she's sinning. They want the preacher to say music can be this loud or music can be of this style, but if it's any other style, then it's wrong. They want rules like that because they're anxious, they're nervous that what if we do things that God doesn't like? But the person of strong faith knows, you know, as long as I'm trying my best to please the Lord, as long as I'm doing what I do out of love, then I'm going to be okay. Because if I mess up, if I have poor judgment, God's going to discipline me, but it's going to be loving discipline. So I'm not worried about these ambiguities and these gray areas. I'm just going to serve God and I'm going to follow his spirit and, and I'm going to grow as I do. Um, so righteousness is not defined by abstaining from things. That's our first principle. And by the way, 
this is the beginning of a section in 1 Corinthians that's about Christian freedom. The whole subject of, because of Jesus, I am free. I'm free to do this. I'm free to do that. But there are limits on my freedom, and here's what they are. Here's how to use my freedom for good. And that's going to last throughout chapter 9, 10, and 11. That's going to be the subject of these next four chapters. So principle number two, we should be guided by love, not just knowledge. We should be guided by love, not just knowledge. So for instance, in the case of uh, eating at Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, having a men's group there, we, as a, as a church, as, as a group of young men, we knew there's nothing sinful about going into a Buffalo Wild Wings. There's nothing sinful about ordering hot wings, uh, unless you happen to have a stomach ulcer, and that's probably a bad idea. There's nothing sinful about sitting with a group of guys and watching football in a place where some guys are, some people are consuming alcohol. As long as none of us gets drunk, there's no sin in that. We knew that. We had that knowledge. Uh, and in, the, in a similar sense, we knew, I knew in that same church when, when people came to me and said, I don't like that these young men are wearing baseball caps in church. I knew in my heart of hearts, there's no sin in wearing a baseball cap in church. There's no sin in, actually, the Bible doesn't really tell you what to wear to church. And you might say, well, doesn't it say that men should have their heads uncovered? Yeah, and that's something that, that's found in 1 Corinthians. We're going to talk about it in a few weeks. It also says that women should pray with their heads covered. So why do we obey one of those and not the other? We'll get into that later. And, and my, my whole point to you is that's not a teaching that is meant to be followed legalistically. There's a principle there, not a command. Um, in other words, I knew that neither one of those things were sin, but that still didn't mean they were right to do. So we should not just ask the question, what is right? We should ask the question, what is loving? That's my whole point. That's the point Paul's trying to make. So let me remind you of verse 10 and 11. For if anyone who sees you who have knowledge, in other words, you the strong one, you the one who knows, it doesn't matter what I eat, it doesn't matter whether I go into a pagan temple or not, it doesn't matter if I'm in the home of people who worship Zeus, none of that matters, that's, that's not going to be upsetting to God. Um, he says, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the person for whom Christ died. So in other words, Paul is saying, love has to ask the question, not just, is it okay for me to do this, but is this going to hurt anybody? Is my exercising my freedom in this matter going to lead to someone else stumbling? So my brother in Corinth, who has recently been saved out of a pagan lifestyle, sees me eating in the temple of Zeus. And he says, well, I guess it's okay for me to eat in Zeus's temple too. And before long, he's sacrificing to Zeus. He's praying to Zeus like he used to. That would be the definition of causing my brother to stumble. Or on another level, maybe he doesn't start going to the temple, but instead it causes division in the body of Christ. And the, you know, the two factions, the strong and the weak, become two churches, and that's not pleasing to God in any way. So if, for instance, to bring it to a more contemporary level, Buffalo Wild Wings, let's say our group was going to go there and watch football, and there was a guy in our group that I knew was a recovering alcoholic. Well, the loving thing would be to say, hey, guys, let's do this at my house. I'll just have everybody over. I'll make wings myself. They'll probably be just as good as Buffalo Wild Wings, and that way our brother over there is not tempted to, to drink. Um, in, in the case of the baseball caps, 
uh, if, and this is literally, literally what happened. I sat down with the teenagers and I said, listen, I love that you're here. I love that many of you are following Jesus now. Just know this is, this, there are some people upset and here's why. You're not doing anything wrong, but ask yourself the question, is this what you want people to think when they see you? Is this the issue you want to take a stand on? Uh, listen, there are times when we have to say, hey, I'm not going to let the weaker brother control my behavior because otherwise we become legalistic. Otherwise we turn into the, uh, otherwise we turn into the Puritans back in the early part of our, our country's history who thought that essentially anything other than reading the Bible was sinful. You can't play cards. You can't go dancing. You can't tell stories. You can't sing music. You can't have fun because it might distract from your love of God. Well, that's not biblical. <laughs> that's not abundant life. And so there, there will come a time, there will come times when you have to say to the weaker brother, listen, we're free to do this in Jesus, and so are you. When it comes to baseball caps, what I said to the teenagers was, is this really the issue you want to take a stand on? Or is this more of a thing where you can say, it's no sacrifice for me to comb my hair and, and not wear my cap to church for an hour? And that's what they chose to do, and, and the issue was averted. In verse 13, Paul says, if, if it comes to it, I'll just give up meat if I have to, because my right to eat meat is more important, is less important than my brother. Paul says love is willing to sacrifice if it keeps a brother from stumbling. And in fact, next chapter, chapter 9, Paul goes on, launches into, here's all the sacrifices I'm making even though I'm free to do all these things, here's the sacrifices I'm choosing to make for the sake of my brothers. Now, why don't you follow my example? But that's next week. So uh, love is the guiding principle, not knowledge. It's good to know what's right. It's good to know what's true and pure. But unless you're guided by love, you're not acting in a way that's pleasing to God. Which brings me to that third issue, the issue of wearing a mask. You may have read things online that say that wearing masks don't do any good, or you just may feel it in your heart. I don't, I don't like being told what to do. I'm not telling you. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, a doctor. I don't know what's true and what's not. You know, Honestly, in this time of COVID-19, you can see our medical establishment, our scientific community, they're doing their best to find out the truth and and they're learning all the time and so we get some misinformation sometimes because assumptions they made early turn out not to be true my point is even if you don't believe that wearing a mask does any good at all do it for the sake of others even if you think it doesn't protect them it certainly keeps them from being afraid it certainly keeps them from being anxious i've had people say i'll come back to church when i know everyone there is wearing a mask you see what I'm saying? By taking, by, by, by performing a small sacrifice. By the way, I hate wearing the mask. I can't wait till we don't have to anymore. But it's a small sacrifice. By doing that, you're helping others. You're putting others ahead of yourself, and that's the whole principle. And then that leads us to principle number three. We are responsible for one another. Our, our righteousness isn't in what we abstain from. We should be guided by love, not just knowledge. And we are literally responsible for each other. In, in Genesis 3 or Genesis 4, when Cain asks that question of God, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Cain, you actually are. And so am I. 
and so are you. It's a consistent biblical theme. If if believers drop out, we have to go after them. If believers are stumbling, we have to lift them up. If we offend people, we make things right. Jesus said, make things right with your brother before you present your gift to the, at the altar. Or God doesn't want your worship. Um, if others are weeping, we should weep alongside them. If others are bearing burdens, we bear their burdens with them. And if we cause them to stumble, even if we didn't overtly sin, then God holds us accountable for the sin we cause them to commit. That is the principle. We're responsible for one another. In other words, our quote-unquote rights are less important than our brother or sister is. And I know that's hard for us because we're Americans and we treasure our rights. But we as Christians, while we thank God for the rights we have, we should not be the ones crowing about our rights we should be the ones laying down our lives. That's the sign of a believer. We should be loving our brother more than others do. And this whole process of being willing to lay down your rights for someone else is a theme that comes up over and over again over these next four chapters. So if you don't like that theme, you're not going to like the next four chapters. There is a balance. Again, there is a balance. It doesn't mean that the weaker, of the weaker parties in churches always get to have their way. If... if the weaker people in the church say, well, you know, every woman ought to wear a dress that comes down to her ankles. I, as a pastor, am not going to capitulate and say, hey, ladies, let's do this so we don't offend them. There, there are times you have to take a stand. You have to say, you have to educate the weaker brother instead of constraining the stronger brother. But you always have to ask the question, what is the loving thing to do? So to get to that most controversial of examples that I opened up with, when to shut down in-person worship, and how does 1 Corinthians 8 apply? That's a difficult question, and there are, diff there are different opinions uh, on this. But earlier this year, you may recall, we came back in person, and then after a few weeks, we shut it down for a while. We shut it down all through July and, and then came back in early August. And we didn't have to do that. And there were some people who questioned, why would you shut down when there wasn't even an order from the government? I mean, you look at John MacArthur's church in California, they're defying their state government to be open for worship. And there were people who said, why can't we be, quote unquote, courageous like that? And let me just say that God is the judge of our church, just like he's the judge of John MacArthur's church in California. Here's, here was our thought process. We knew that technically speaking, we had the right to worship in person. We don't have the same state government as California. They weren't telling us we couldn't. But even if they would have, under God, we have the right. We, no one can tell us not to gather uh, under God. And if I think it's right for us to worship, I should be willing to go to jail uh, if, if I have to, to protest the, the government's overreach. But what we did was we paid attention to the numbers of cases that were rising, and we saw what that was doing to our community and, and our local economy. We consulted doctors, uh, including uh, some in our own congregation. And what do you think we should do? What is the best, most responsible thing for us to do? And, and we did, in the end, we chose to stop meeting. And I know some of you would say, well, why are you trying to control us? Why not just open the church and let us decide whether or not we feel safe? And I get that. I really get that mentality. But it wasn't about just us getting sick. Frankly, I'm not worried about getting sick. Um, chances are I'd be fine if I did, and even if I didn't, heaven's my reward. It's not about that. 
here's what it is about. We're part of a community and we want to be good neighbors. We want to love our neighbors. And there were and are a lot of our neighbors who were worried about this. And we didn't want to add to their anxiety. We didn't want to say, eh, we don't care that the hospitals are filling up. We don't care that cases are rising exponentially. We don't care about any of that. We're going to exercise our right. We thought it was better in the love of Christ and more emblematic of the love of Christ to give up our right temporarily to meet in person so that we could show the community we're in this together. We're trying to do what's best for all of us, not just the people in this room. We're willing to give up some of our rights to do our part in slowing the spread of this. Now, I don't know if that was the right decision. Only God really knows whether that was the right decision or not. And I trust someday at my judgment I'll find out. But here's what I'm confident of. I'm confident that the decision we made was made with the right motives, the right, the right hopes. We weren't standing up for ourselves. We were trying to do what we thought was the Christ-like thing to do. And, and I think I, I could go to bed at night feeling good about that in that sense. See, none of this is easy. The weak person wants rules. The, weak, the person of weak faith wants there to be clear-cut right and wrong on every single thing, wants to take a stand on every single issue. That's not Christ-honoring Christianity. Christ-honoring Christianity says, I'm going to follow the commands, the explicit commands of Scripture. I'm not going to vary from those. But most of all, I'm going to love God, and I'm going to love my neighbor, and I'm going to let that kind of principle guide me. And that's not always easy to do. It's not always easy to know you're doing right. But you know you have a God whose Holy Spirit guides you, whose grace is enough to forgive you, and who will always, always use your good and bad decisions to cause you to grow. Well, this Bible study may have brought up some questions in your mind. Uh, if it did, please call me or email me. I'd love to talk to you. I don't want to leave you confused. I, I do want us to be of one mind, and I want you to grow in your faith. So, Hope you're having a great week. I look forward to seeing many of you this weekend for worship. And some of you are going to be traveling out of town. I hope you'll take time to watch us online. A lot of you haven't yet felt comfortable about coming back in person. And I understand that. I hope you'll watch us and worship with us online as well. But either way, I love you and God bless you.